This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. The Timeless Podcast Company present this podcast. sound design. Welcome to the Breaking Anonymity podcast. My name is MC Search, and I will be joined later by my co-host Kyle Eustace. Each week we sit down with musicians, celebrities, and artists to have real conversations as they share their stories of addiction and recovery. Before we bring on our guest, Danny Boy O'Connor from House of Pain, Thought I'd tell you a little bit about myself. Most of the world knows me as MC Search, but I am Michael and I am an addict. My recovery date is 11-11-11. And besides the success I've had in music and as a businessman building companies like Echo Unlimited Clothing and Nouveau Liqueur, I was an addict. And with the help of a 12-step program, it led me into the rooms of recovery. My partner Kyle Eustace is a veteran music journalist writing for Hip Hop DX and Thrasher magazine and has 14 years of recovery. Our goal is that our show can bring inspiration and hope to other people out there. Please excuse the sound quality as this was recorded during the pandemic, which presented its own set of audio challenges. Here is Danny Boy O'Connor on the Breaking Anonymity podcast. Our next guest rose to notoriety in the 1990s as part of the hip-hop group House of Pain alongside Everlast and DJ Lethal. The single Jump Around, which everybody knows, peaked at number three on the Billboard Hot 100 and helped the album go platinum. He went on to form La Coca Nostra in 2006 with Slain, Ill Bill, Everlast, and DJ Lethal. And as I just reminded him, um, if you were a teenager in the early 90s, you might have caught him on tour with the Beastie Boys and L7, like I did, one of the best days of my life so we are really honored to welcome danny boy to the breaking anonymity podcast well listen i first i want to just preface it by saying thank you for allowing me to participate in my recovery and as we talked earlier uh you know it's not well there are some people who their anonymity is is to protect them, whether the career choice or whatever you know the the people around them don't know. I'm the opposite, so I live my, I live high and drunk out loud. I might as well be sober out loud as well. So uh, the journey, I I I don't want to say I'm well read, but I've read a few books and I I, I love um, documentaries and I love autobiographies. And I get a little upset when I read autobiographies and they read like the greatest hits catalog. It, there's no for me there's a there's a lot of the bad stuff i try not to you know highlight that but just for uh you know for reference points you know just so people understand that there is a way out and uh growing up i didn't know that there was anything other than being an alcoholic because i grew up in an alcoholic family that way i didn't know anybody else's life looked any different than mine did i uh I was born in New York, in Brooklyn. Uh, when I was two months old, my father went to prison for a decade, and we moved in with my grandparents in Staten Island. Uh, some of the best years of my life were spent there. Um, I'm going to say we lived with my grandmother for about the first three years, and then we moved 
a mile down the street to the Tyson Lane projects and my life completely turned into something uh, way different than what the life with the grandparents uh, looked like. Uh, my mother had remarried and she married an alcoholic, perhaps, you know, I think he was a former junkie and an active alcoholic, uh, very abusive um, to my mother. And just like, you know, in, the, in those projects and in, in that 70s era where a lot of people were coming home from Vietnam and, and there was, you know, there was a garbage strike and, a, and a, New York was financially, you know, bankrupt and... There was just a lot of cutty shit going on in the projects and there's a lot of cutty stuff going on, you know, in, in, in our, in our building. And so I didn't know that anybody else had a different life experience. Mine just looked the way it did. And I just assumed that everybody's life looked like that. And, um, I grew up in a household that just, I, I assumed everybody else's house looked like that. I also grew up watching All in the Family. And so anytime there was like arguing and, and ashtrays flying across the room or, 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 plates and, and stuff like that it just seemed all normal um my mother used to if she had a few drinks she would reminisce about the tough guy that my father was or she would you know tell me i'll be just like him you know dead or in prison by the time i'm 21 so growing up i always felt uh you know that that was just the way it was um when we were when i was six we moved to los angeles uh, my mother worked at the chase manhattan bank as a key punch operator and key punching turned into computer, you know, programming. And so we moved west to, to be a part of that. Um, I kind of have a Karate Kid story as well, because, you know, we moved from Staten Island to the San Fernando Valley. Uh, I didn't necessarily fit in. They used to say, you know, say quarter, say quarter, say water. and like water. And like they were, you know, kids were, they didn't see guys from New York. There was no internet, there was no cell phones, there was no cable TV. So I was like an oddity to them. And I felt, you know, a little disconnected. And, I, and I, I've always, as you know, as the, as the hat is there since I'm a kid, I always felt like a New Yorker who was pulled out of New York and brought to LA. I didn't look at LA as like I wanted to go to LA. I always felt like a, there was a disconnect. And I and I and I, I've always had an affinity for New York music, the scene, the the history of New York. And so I always felt disconnected in LA. And around the time I was about, you know, 10, 11, 12. This is when you start to, this is when I started to notice like, well, my neighbor's got like Nintendo and I've got like something from Tandy where Radio Shack and they've got Lacoste and I got La Tiger. And you know, and it, there was, I could tell that there was like a class difference going on as well. And it just, it, it, I always felt that I believed that big lie. And I think it, it, for, for me, it started at home. I always thought that as I was by myself, I'm not enough. And I did everything I could to be better than or to make myself feel better about who I was because internally I always felt dirty. And I think I, in my case, I feel like I got that at home. And, you know, I'm not pointing any fingers, but the message that was drilled to me was like that. You're going to be like your father, dead or in prison. So get used to that fact. And I heard that a lot. And so I always try to overcompensate and, and overdo everything that I've done. Uh, it's no, it's, it's ironic a bit, but when I saw the outsiders at 13 for the first time in my life, maybe Greece and, and, you know, uh, uh, American graffiti had like a, but that was older guys. When I saw the outsiders for the first time, I saw what I, what I looked at was kind of mirroring how I felt. And I thought, well, if nothing, 
if there's nothing in life but running around with a few of your friends who all had their your best interests and 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 looked out for you in that way, you know, if that's the best life gets, then then I can I, that's I can deal with it. We gotta get in with those socials. Let's do it for Johnny, man. We'll do it for Johnny. The 80s kicked in. Everybody seemed to have designer clothes, guest jeans, all, you know, cars given to them when they're 16 years old. And while my mom made all right money, she did not give it to us, so she didn't give it to me. And it was not that. And so I felt that disconnect. And it was right around that time that I started drinking as well. And drinking for me was the great equalizer. You know, it just made me feel, you know, one time I was in a, in a meeting early on and a, and a transvestite, she got up and she shared that, you know, once she drank, it made her feel wittier, prettier, and tittier. And I, we were cracking up in the back. But then that was the thing. Like, when you know, I laughed because I related to that. And I don't feel tittier, but I get the, the, the analogy. I felt like I could dance, I could talk, I could get on stage or, or pretend to, like, spit a rhyme and, and whatever. I couldn't do anything without that drink. And that first drink, I remember like it was yesterday because it changed my life. And, and it, it changed my life in such a profound way that I just, again, I, I, it was short of what I was wearing that night, I remember just about everything about that night. And what was different that night than any other night, I had drank a few times before with no real success. But that one day, that one night we were making, uh, somebody brought us uh, uh, the cheap, Kool-Aid type of orange juice in the in the milk container, and a bottle of vodka. We were mixing it and 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 drinking vodka and orange juice. And I had a few of those, and I went into this nightclub, and all of a sudden the lights hit different, and it just my garments got looser, and my swag. All of a sudden this new swagger came about, and I was out there dancing. Usually I was dancing like kind of, but not really fully. And I was it just it opened up a whole new porthole for me, and my whole universe changed in that one moment. And the two things looking back as a, you know, a recovering alcoholic and addict, I know what happened. But at that time, I didn't understand what happened. But what happened for me was it not only changed the way I was looking at the world, it changed the way I thought the world was looking at me. And that's pretty important when you feel like everybody's looking at you like you're a piece of shit. Like I used to be the guy who walk in a store and think everybody's looking at me that I'm stealing. And how that happens is one, I feel like low self-esteem and how it also happens because I used to steal. Drinking kind of made all of that melt away. You know, it, it, it amplified all the character defects that worked. It minimized all of the ones and, and, and the maladies that didn't. And it was really like uh, the wings or the, 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 the magic serum that I needed just to make it through life. And I remember thinking, why did I wait to be 15 and a half to start drinking? And the next thought was, I will never not do this for the rest of my life. I, I literally felt like I found the missing ingredient of my life. And I continued to drink like that until I didn't. Um, like every, like a lot of people I've heard, you know, say it's fun, then it's fun with problems, and then it's just problems. Without a doubt, that was me. I um, All the glorious stuff that happens in, in one's life happened while I was under the influence. And all of the bad stuff definitely happened when I was under the influence as well. And, uh, you know, I net... Every time I drank, I didn't end up in handcuffs, but every time I was in handcuffs, I was drunk. So, I mean, that's pretty much, then that's, you know, there's that, that in a nutshell, that that's the truth. Um, well, everybody, well, I made it to high school. I did not really attend high school. I hung out at my high school. Uh, it was a very unique high school. 
we have a mutual friend, a few mutual friends that went to Taft High School, but Taft was a very, it, it was in a nicer neighborhood. It was south of the, the Boulevard on Ventura Boulevard in the San Fernando Valley. At the time, the biggest fence around that school was the tennis court. And it was very like, really like hands off, like, you know, California, like hippy dippy slash, you know, it just, you could do whatever you want there. And all I did was go in and get an ID card and then go, there was a parking lot and it had a slanted thing that kids used to skateboard or, or hang out on. And there was a Ralph's and a bunch of little, uh, you know. So it was like, I was hanging out. I went up to the school area. I never went in the school area. I have a ninth grade education. And while most kids were going off to, you know, school, doing their thing, and then heading off to college or a career, I was hanging out, chopping it up, trying to be, you know, hip slick and sick. And, you know, all of the stuff that I idolized or worshipped or looked up to was all of the all of the bad parts of hip hop culture, all of the bad parts of street culture. It, it, I know why people I know why people love the outsiders. Right. Because kids come to the house and they read it and we'll get to, you know, why that's important to me. But it's the same reason people like gangs or it's the same. And, you know, I know Search will understand this, but my original attraction to hip hop. I mean, I grew up in my mother. All she had was Motown records. She did not like Elvis. She did not like the Beach Boys. That was not a New York thing. And my mother used to dance at the Peppermint Lounge. She, black music was like in my household. So when I got to L.A., they were calling me Disco Dan. And that was like, those were fighting words. I didn't like that. I still it's funny now, but it's an honor now, you know, Disco Dan. But at the time, it was like I had to fight over people insinuating that it like disco, you know, but I love disco. I grew up roller skating, etc. Uh, why am I trying to tell you that? Oh, because, you know, and then I got out into the into the into the real world and you know there was that 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 separation stuff going on. And I see hip hop and I'm like, this is different than the rock thing. So the rock thing was like the kids I knew that were into rock, they were into drugs early. Not all of them, but it was like it was, you know, that Stoner Hesher LA rock scene was like drugs hanging out alone in your bedroom for eight hours practicing your guitar and your fucking pentatonic scales and all that shit. Hip-hop was just starting to, like, happen. I was going back to New York every summer. My mother would export me back to where I came from so I could get out of her hair. And so I'd go New York, L.A., New York, L.A. And so I was leaving L.A. with, like, skate and surf culture, bringing it to New York. And then I would spend all summer in New York and New Jersey. I would come home to L.A. with all of the New York shit that was popping. Like DJ Red Alerts is blowing it up. Brett Mazur, our, our, our mutual friend, is he was doing that too. And, and actually, Everlast was too. And so there was a lot, there was a handful of little kids that were like West Coast, East Coast kids that it was like being a, a magician. We have more with Danny Boy O'Connor coming up right after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're back with the Breaking Anonymity podcast and Danny Boy O'Connor from House of Pain. I didn't have a good family life at home whatsoever. So I understand the appeal of the outsiders, gangs, motorcycle clubs, uh, fraternal organizations, team sports. I didn't really play because my mother, there was no support for that at home. But hip hop, in a, it personified that like graffiti had crews. Uh, 
break dancers broke in a crew, in a in a in a posse, in a and I like doing things together with a crew. I missed punk rock, although I was involved in punk rock and in, in, in a in a gang thing, which is another weird rabbit hole that we we just probably it's, it'll take too long. But had I been five years older, punk rock would have been my thing. But because I'm 52, I was right at the forefront of hip hop and going back and forth. I was like I was ahead of the curve for my my peer group. And it was my punk rock, really. And what I love about it, what I love about what I do for a living now is the scavenger hunt in it. And so if you wanted to be a B-boy, you had to go. I couldn't get the, the sneakers I wanted in Southern California, in Woodland Hills, California, because they were rocking, you know, uh, espadrilles and, and, and tree torns and, and Stan Smith. There was no purple uh, Pumas or any any official, I had to go on a mission to go get those. So we would have to go to the Slauson Swami. We'd have to go to, you know, we'd have to go to Long Beach for records. We'd have to go. And what I loved about it was a rite of passage. It was really like you find a few B-boys and it was like, yo, you got to go here if you want champion hoodies. And you got to go over all the other, completely on the other side of like town to Venice if you want to get those medallions and those beads that they're making. And you want to get those sneakers, you got to go to the Fox Hills Mall. And in going there, you could get lumped up if you were. So we would go official and just go get our thing. And then I would come on a Friday night and then we would send it out into the real world and parade it to see if people would salute it. Like, and I would meet other people that way. Like, yo, he looks like he's a B-boy. That's how I really, I met Everlast. That's how I met Brad at high school. Cause he looked like a little B-boy and we, I would run into him. And so that concept of, 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 of making a family outside of the family that I never had, was always appealing to me. And unfortunately, the downside of those things is a lot of those extracurricular crews and groups outside of it, they were not just breakdancing, you know? And I I said this earlier when I, when, when I was talking, I think, uh, in, a, in another meeting where, and this is true, it's, it sounds funny when I say it to me, but I saw Scarface and I was like, damn, this was like a documentary. It was like the blueprint, because I'm lazy. I gotta be honest with you, like, I'm the hardest working lazy guy I know. I wanna do just enough to get the result and not a, not a, not a, nothing more. And so for me, I thought drug dealing looks good. I like it, I like shiny stuff. I like to make quick cash. I like the danger element. And so I was doing that type of stuff in high school. I was doing a lot of credit card theft too, which is a whole other story, but we were able to reprogram the back of the strips of those, those credit cards back in the day. And, man, and and make IDs as well. And I, I'm known for that. If people, anybody who knows me from high school, they know. And we used to rack a lot of stuff too. When I, the mall by us had one security guard in a golf cart. And we would just grab as much gas, Thompson Ton, and whatever we wanted, and really walk out the door. And, and he wasn't doing nothing about it. So I was that, and I thought that was cool guy shit. So while everybody else was going off, you know, making a life for themselves, I had nothing to show for it. And what my mother told me, you're going to be like your father, dead or in prison by the time you're 21, was starting to come true. I mean, that was really where I was headed and, and quick. And then as fate would have it, you know, uh, a few things happened. Uh, I, I, I ran into Everlast. Uh, Everlast at the time, for you don't know, uh, if, if you're listening, you're like, who, who's he talking about and who am I? And, uh, we, you know, we started a band called House of Pain. But prior to that, I, he grew up in my neighborhood or I grew up in his neighborhood. He basically grew up in my neighborhood. But he, he and I'm being a dick, but he 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 had already signed a record uh, deal with Ice-T. And in that, I mean, in high school, you got a record with Ice-T. I'm like, yo. And I liked his music. He, he was dope to me. Uh, I felt something was missing. I thought I could help him identify, you know, a crowd that would be more receptive because to me, it just whatever. And so 
he made a record. The record came out. The record really didn't get, you know, uh, it, it didn't blow him up. And so he was back to the square one. And then we, we reconnected. I'm a branding guy. I never was a rapper. I used to dabble in, 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 in rhyming. I used to dabble in graffiti. I did break dance. I still could get my uprock is still nice with it, you know. But at the end of the day, he's a real MC and a real rapper. I'm the guy who was like the leader of the gang who could do graphics and could get a lot of people involved and, and, and make it feel like you got now it's not just Everlast it's Everlast and Danny Boy and all these Mickey Mouse Club type dudes that are like we're going into the spot we're going to do our thing and I'm the dude, one who was like yo I'm Irish you're Irish let's just be Irish let's do that and so it was a fan you know Beastie Boys a fan of third base but it came later you know I was mad at, because you know they I, I love the Beastie so much that I was like man third base is mad at the Beasties I'm mad at third base but I've always loved just you know I, it, it, here it comes is my it's actually my favorite too which is after that fact but you know here it comes you'll hear it as though there it was but where was it when you needed it because regardless there was only a handful of white b-boys at that time and you could only you know it, 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 we, we were a small group of, of people and so why i'm telling you all this story is is that it saved me from the consequences of drinking selling drugs never using drugs at that point and I, I, by the time I was 17, I was already on trial for attempted murder for somebody got shot in the park by Brett's, neighbor, by Brett's house. And two people went to prison. One of them is dead now. One of them is homeless now. The other guy went on to, he's a record producer and I'm just, I went on to. So it, it was those kind of things we were going on at 17. I look back now and I'm like, oh my God, it, it, it doesn't seem real. So we made a record. Me and Everlast got together. We agreed that I had a piece of the pie. He had a piece of the puzzle, whatever. We put it together, mugs jumped in and, and, and next thing you know, we got a hit record. I always qualify that to tell you that it, it only delayed that train wreck by a decade, okay? Because I was really in the fast lane, going full speed towards a brick wall, and the music kind of like hopped over that for a time. Uh, unfortunately for me, uh, by the time 96, 97 starts to roll around, the band has started to fizzle. We were infighting. We were literally growing apart. It, it, we couldn't, we were completely polar opposite. And Everlast decides he's not doing this anymore. And my plan B was, there was no plan B. You know, I thought once we made, you know, once we hit it big, we were never coming down. And this was just the start of like where this was going. And unfortunately that was not the case. To make matters worse for me and my frail ego and my insecurity, Everlast goes on to get a Grammy and sell a million records and Lethal is, is, is you know, produced the first Limp Bizkit record and then joins the band and they go on to sell how many records, I don't know. And I'm there literally downward spiraling. Uh, at this point now, I've incorporated drugs into my world. Uh, I'm using recreational, and then it turns into immediately a full-blown addict. It's ecstasy, cocaine, and then finally I find methamphetamines. And methamphetamines do for me what the drink did for me originally. Uh, cocaine was too much of like, it was a, it was a crapshoot for me. If I did cocaine, it was like blowing up a balloon and letting it out. I didn't know where the fuck it was going. With meth, it was a nice clean arc. I would get high, stay up. And it made me interested in being a creative again. Uh, meth is a really weird, at least for me, you know, because I could spend copious amount of time focusing on, on one thing, one th painting, art, whatever it was. Um, 
but it it, it, it is literally the devil. And it it, it, it it had its way with me for four years where I didn't think I was ever gonna, you know, to be able to, almost, I was losing the way, I couldn't even speak. I was so, so fucked up. I lost half my weight. I had like a, like a half of a, a stroke. My, my speaking, I could think it, but it couldn't get the words out. By the time I, by the time I first hit a 12 step meeting, uh, I had needed it for a long time before I, I got in there. I had actually taken a quick road stop to uh, to uh, a rehab during the House of Pain era just to get them off my ass. As, as it was falling apart, our band in 97, uh, everybody started pointing fingers at why. And they were like, he's a drug addict, he's, a, he's in a bike club, blah, 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 he's, he's ruined, whatever. So I went to rehab to get them off my ass. I had no intention of stopping doing anything. It was all a ploy to just get them to fuck off. Uh, but by the time I did end up at, at, at a meeting, I had needed it for a long time. Um, I often share, I don't remember what I heard that day in that meeting, but I do remember I heard laughter. You know, I don't know what they said. I don't know what the topic was. I don't know anything except for I remember hearing laughter and as strange as that sounds because I I own a fart machine let me just tell you that like I brought it to the museum last week a remote control fart machine and kids were looking in the room I'm blowing the farts the dad's yelling at the kid yeah, I brought it to the supermarket I put it in my girl's hoodie she didn't know it was there she's talking to the counter lady and I'm blowing fart button and like so I'm always laughing my old nickname was pranks and I'm still up to that but there was so many years where I was dead inside that there was nothing funny I couldn't even remember what laughter sounded like and, and that was the first thing I found in recovery uh, one I found the willingness which eluded me forever because the last person you know to yeah i just don't like showing up for myself i'm funny that way if you ask me to help you to do something i would clearly do it and if i have to do something i would i, I wait till someone else will to do it for me but i showed up and i was willing the next day my buddy said you should go to that meeting you know uh it's a good meeting and they have it tonight as well and i said will you be there he said no nah, unfortunately i got to take my kid to somewhere and i was like well then i won't go and i always tell this story as well and as the clock started to tick down as that meeting was a couple blocks away there's something inside of me said, if you don't get up and go to that meeting, like now you're never going back. And if you want a chance of sobriety, cause I had one day sober, you, you should get up off the couch and get your ass to that meeting. And that's exactly what I did. And I was scared. I mean, I'm a six foot six alpha male, but I brought my backpack. I sat at the corner of that seat, the last seat on the front row. I put my backpack to the seat next to me. This so is nobody could sit next to me. I was like, I don't know what I was scared of, but truly, I've always been uh, scared. My that 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 I used to be scared to go into skateboard stores and record shops, especially if they're like, "Can we help you?" I was like, "Yo," like I just didn't want to. I, I never had good skills that way, and 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 so that's why drinking and using always kind of soften those things. But I went to the second meeting, and my life changed. Now I want to tell you, I stayed sober since then. That was in year two thousand. I stayed sober the first year. I did a step a, a step a year. So that's 12 steps, one year. I thought it was the fast track. Uh, within a month, they were they had me doing a coffee commitment, a cleanup commitment. At three months, they gave me the treasury commitment. I often say I'm not a thief in that way, but I definitely was honored to that they would let me collect money, put it in an envelope, write that out, and give it to the basket. It was I felt you know it's a, it's an esteemable thing and. Um, at six months, they asked me to lead at my first meeting. And again, you know, being on stage in, 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 in rap mode with their glasses, that's, that's doable. Being in front of 30 people and, and, and being vulnerable and telling my story, that was, I was terrified, actually. I kept playing it off and I kept thinking of a, a million ways to opt out of it. I don't feel good, guys. Oh, I can't do today. Something came up. But I showed up. And I don't know where 
I don't even know what to attribute my willingness to, but it, it was there in that moment. And so I went in, I shared my experience, strength and hope, and I left a thousand pounds lighter. And I thought that was fantastic. Um, and that year was a great year. At the end of that year, I, I ended up becoming uh, employable again. I ended up getting a, a solo record deal. They front loaded me a lot of money. Um, I got a really good publishing deal. Um, the guy was also in the program, so he, he gave me most of it up front, which is great. I spent it all on sneakers. Um, my attitude came back. My ego came back. Um, that's like year two in a nutshell. As I get into year three, I'm not making a lot of meetings. I'm only going to Friday Night Lights. I'm only going where the girls are. Uh, if you need a sponsor and you ask me, I'm saying, I'm kind of busy. Maybe so-and-so could do that for you. Not going, I'm not doing the work. I'm just not doing the work. And at year three and a half, I was like three, I was in three and three months, let's say. I started to think, you know what, bro? It wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. Oh, mind you, I spent all the money that, that they gave me almost half a million dollars for this deal. I spent it all. The record gets basically shelved. They give me my master's back. The company was the firm, the, the management company, and their record company folds because they didn't get the big deal from whatever. So they gave everybody their master's back. And at that point, they were outdated and just didn't, it was two and a half years. I didn't feel the same about them. So I spent the money and I decided that maybe drinking wasn't a problem anymore. I convinced myself that thanks for, thanks for everything I got here from the 12-step program, thanks God, but I, I'm gonna go take it from here. And looking back again, it was just fear, untreated alcoholism, working those steps, and I was only there to take. I was not there to give back. And in order to keep this thing, the, the number one thing you have to do is give it back. And I had stopped giving it back after year one, and my ego came back, my insecurity came back, all of that stuff came back. And so I decided just to have a drink, and I told myself I'll never do drugs again, that clearly destroyed my life, but a drink, I'm Irish, how bad can it be? I know so much more about myself now, I'm so much more smarter than I was before getting sober. And I want to tell you, 72 hours after that first drink, I was back at the dope, man. I was calling, it was the dope girl, actually. But I called the dope girl, and she said, who's it for? I said, it ain't for me. And she says, great, I'll be right over. She knew dear, damn well it was for me. And she, they couldn't wait to have me back. You know, they used to talk shit about me behind my back all day long, but they can't wait to have you back because now you're in the fucking muck with them again. And so I was back to, you know, using methamphetamines. In my head, then my next plan was, well... If it goes bad, I always know I can go back to AA. And true enough, it went bad within 30 days. I almost literally burnt out everything I had, had, had done in the three years of sobriety. And I went back to the same meeting and uh, everybody welcomed me back. There was no shame on my end from being like, oh, I didn't, I didn't, I don't have any problem. If I, if, you know, the problem was I couldn't hear the message anymore. It just was like, I would get there late. I'd leave early. I was rocking back and forth. I was irritable, discontent, miserable. I just, and every, I'd get 30 days, I'd get six days, I'd get nine days, and it didn't matter. It just, something would always come up. She would break up with me. The the mail came and it's red and I can't pay my cell phone bill. I got, I can't, I'm just drinking. I'm using again. So I'd go, and for three years and change, I was on a downward spiral and by the time I ended up at the bottom, I was living in a warehouse on a couch with with nothing to my name. Everything that I had got on the outside was completely gone. My teeth were gone. I just, these are all, this is $70,000 worth of your finest. Uh, my teeth were literally 
I couldn't smile. I'd smile and have to hold my face. And there's a video of people you want to, I shouldn't tell you this, but I don't care. And I, I really don't. There's a video that I did with this this kid, uh, Danny Diablo, Lord Isaac. And if you Google like Satanic Shamrocks is the name of the song. I'm in the video. I'm so high. I don't even realize I, I'm spitting and there's no teeth. And it's like, that's how bad I had to get before I was willing to truck to, 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 to do this again. And now, as I say that to you, I feel like I always was willing, but I took the gift for granted. And I was willing for those three and a half years, but it, it just wasn't taking. And finally, I was so sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was homicidal and suicidal. And without getting into any details, I promise you, I was going to kill myself or kill the, peop- the, the person that was making my, and it was not even someone I really knew. It was, I was like, it was like psychosis and shit like that. And a guy I knew, uh, he said, hey man, he used to bother me with these texts. You could deserve to have a good day to do today. And I hope you're doing well. And when you're coming back and one day he hit me and I was at my wits end and I was literally, I probably was going to kill myself if, if, if I'm being honest. And I said, hey, man, I need a meeting. He goes, oh, that's funny. I'm in Hollywood. I'm going to the whatever meeting. And I, he goes, where are you at? I go, I'm in Hollywood. I go, where's the whatever meeting? He's like, it's on uh, Melrose and whatever, Suites or wherever it is. And I'm like, dude, I'm like a quarter, I'm like two blocks, three blocks away from that. And he's like, sweet, let's go. And that was the start of a, a whole new chapter of my life. That was uh, almost 16 years ago. My sober date is April 15th, 2005. Uh, this year, Danny Willing, it will be... I'll be 16, like I said. I uh, did everything different than I did the first sobriety. The first sobriety, if I'm, you know, if I'm looking back, it was really like I liked the, the taste of the coffee. There were pretty girls there. It felt like 13th grade, you know. I like to hang out and talk that shit. But at the end of the day, I was really there to get my shit back. You know, I thought God would return the records back, return the house back, the girls, the cars. I just thought if I was a good little boy maybe I could get my stuff back. And I got a lot of that stuff back, ironically enough. Uh, what I found out that, it didn't fix me. And I also found out that that's outside stuff. It has nothing to do with what's really going on. And my problem starts, it always is, is that God-shaped hole and it's it's in me. Egomaniac, low self-esteem. Um, and what I do today that's different uh, is everything. I, I let go of old ideas, that was major. The first time when I got sober, I brought all these crazy ideas into my new life. And it doesn't work that way, at least for me. This time too, I had to let all those ideas go. I, I work a program, I work a 12-step program, sometimes better than other times. Um, and I live, if you, if you know the steps, the, the last three are about the giving back part. Um, the steps are great. I just want to quickly go through them. You know, uh, you know I, made a pro- I admit I have a problem. That's the first step. Two, that I can't do anything without help. Three, I turn that over to a power greater than myself. So that whole thing introduces me to my God. And I connect through my God through you guys, which is great. Uh, four and five, I, I put down on paper everything that's going on and how I got there and what it's affecting me and what was my part. The whole thing is to find out what my part was. What I found out, and this I know you guys won't believe this, but I found out that I was selfish, self-seeking, and then I'm a giver, but I give with strings. So if I give you something, I want you to tell everybody that I gave you that. You know, don't ever, don't shine without me. You know what I'm saying? I gave you that. But you tell them that's where it came from. And that's that's not giving. That's that's not giving. And um, I found out that, no, you know, no matter where I was, that, you know, that the, my problem followed me. So I had to change those behaviors. And I also had to make right for a lot of the, the shit that I was doing and also stop playing the victim. Um, and so I go through that. I read it to another person. There were things I was never going to tell people, was going to go to the grave with. 
And I don't know, again, I, I, you know, as I, as I share, I go, where did that willingness come from? Cause I won't do it again. I wouldn't tell, like I said, I'm an open book, but there are some things I'm just not going to talk about that anymore because it's it just, I'm terrified. And so there were things I told my sponsor and, and so far so good, you know, um, I trusted him. He gave it to God and we, we moved on. Uh, and then I went through my process of, you know, identifying, you know, who I had wronged. And then I didn't waste any time uh, trying to make that right. And there was a, a, a right out right after I did those steps. I ran into a guy that I actually owed money to who I worked a project at Reebok with. And he he was silly enough. He was a good friend enough. How about that? To advance me this five thousand dollar check that Reebok was going to send me because I couldn't wait three months. You know, he's like, well, the billing cycle, I'm like, you give me that money and I'll give you the check when, when Reebok sends it. Three months later, he goes, hey, did you get your check? I'm like, uh, what check? I had already got that check and cashed it too. So sure enough, I run into this guy, got great guy, Colin. He's like, hey, bro. And I was like, I had avoided him. He threatened to sue me. He's, his father's a lawyer, the whole thing. And I said, I said, bro, I owe you an amends. And he's like, no, dude, I miss you. You look great. I said, man, I'm sober. You know, I got like six months. He's like, that's all I ask of you, bro. Stay sober. And I was like, thank you, bro. But that's not enough. And I ended up, I was fortunate enough to be, I got employable really quick, this sobriety. And we used to work at trade shows. I'd see him at the, he's in the clothing industry. And I was in at that point as well. And it was nothing better for me to see him in a hotel. As we were checking in the hotel, I said, Colin, 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 I need to talk to you. And I said, listen, I want to sit down and remaking that amends even though you said and I want to write you the check and it, it, I, I I wasn't giving him my money I was giving him his money back you know and I have it, it was one of the greatest feelings in the world and so I started to make my amends and I started to get right size with all of that stuff and people also started to you know look at me in a different way and then, you know, I continue to do that in my daily life. And, you know, 10, 11 and 12 is really just, you know, it's your primary purpose. If you're if you're an addict alcoholic and you're working a 12 step program, the, the greatest news that I ever received was that I have a primary purpose. And I wandered through life for so many years, not knowing why I was here, what I was supposed to be doing here and just winging it all with no plan and no real skills to do anything. The greatest relief I had ever got in this program was when somebody told me, Danny, your primary purpose is to stay sober and help another alcoholic. Trust God, clean house, help others. And so when I wake up, what the f- I wake up, like I said, like in panic sometimes, I immediately counteract that with my prayer, a two minute meditation. I wish it was five, but it's two. And then I do a gratitude list. I write down the date that it is a gratitude list. And then I write five things that I'm grateful for. And they're pretty redundant. You start doing these lists and you realize you're going to be like, there's a lot of like overlap. That's fantastic. These are the things that I used to take for granted. I would fight you if I was in a bad mood and you said, what are you you in a bad mood for? You got clean water, hot shower, a full fridge. I I would want to fight because I was like, how dare you? That's not that everybody has that. No, everybody doesn't have that. And I had to learn that the hard way when by losing all of that, the basic things that I assume that everybody does just, you should have that. I lost all of that. And so I am always forever grateful for good company, good friendships. Uh, even a bad day, it, it beats, you know, uh, I got friends that would trade from the grave to be on my worst days just to be back here 
talking to search, talking to you, talk, you know, like, like really, like I get to do this. I don't have to do anything. And it's also, that's where the, when, when I got sober and that's what I, you know, we had a shift in consciousness. I look at things different now, you know, when eBay first came out and I sold something, I'm like, damn, you can sell anything. I started the whole room looked like something that I could sell and make money with. My life looks like that now when I'm in gratitude. Cause I look around and there's everything is to be grateful for. This is, and it's very clear to me. I don't, I get to have this life and I get to do this stuff. I don't have to do anything. And if I, you know, like, so I'm always in gratitude, but I need to do that every morning so that I'm on my square, that I'm right size. And it sometimes it lasts an hour, sometimes it lasts all day, but I have to always reel it back in. And where, 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 where the rubber meets the road for me is when I talk to other alcoholics and they're going through it. And I talk to a lot of people. I talk to a lot of, it's a real tight community. And they're like, man, you know, Tulsa's great, but I'm fucking, I'm trying to go to, to, to Florida. And, and I'm like, you just got here. And I'm like, you know, I go, don't you think it's like where it's grass is always greener? Like, slow down. Like, what stuff are you working on? And like, yeah, and I work in there. You, you could tell, you know, when I'm talking, then I remind myself, oh, I'm thinking the same thing about something else. So the one, the one day at a time thing is also, it's, it's everything to me because I like the future trip. And every time I think of the future, I'm in terror. My sobriety day is April 15th. That has got to be the worst day in U.S. history in my mind. I fucking, if you want to abolish the police, you want to abolish, the, I'm not down with that. If you want to abolish the IRS, I'm down with that. If you want to abolish income tax, I'm, I'm your guy. Like I, I'm suited and booted when you want to go that route. And I'm in terror because I don't know how to do math. I make a lot of money all in weird areas. I don't know what it looks like. They send me things saying I owe this money, that. I'm like, what the? So it's a terrifying prospect. And what I need to do is start showing up the way I showed up for my sobriety and where I show up for, you know, my thing in that way. I need to grow up. And at 52 years old, I'm still just like trying to get acclimated with like life on life's term, be responsible, keep your side of the street clean. And that also means with the IRS, that also means with, you know, my business relations, that also means it, 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 it works in all areas of life. And I told my girl today, I said, you know, what? It, it, it often dawns on me that I wish the whole world had a program that we were all going by the same rule set because we would all be accountable that way. And we would also realize that there's empathy for like, look at some days I'm on that hot seat. Some days you're on it, but we together, we can do this, you know? And it's, I, I said, I don't wish you would be an alcoholic and an addict, but I wish you had a 12 step program, you know, so we could talk and, and not, you know, and have like the relief that I get from working this program. And if you're new and you're listening to this, I want to assure you that there is a difference between abstinence and, and working a program. I, I don't, I didn't get sober just to sit around and, and, you know, and not partake in, in drinking and, and using. Drinking and using was my solution for all of life's problems. It just stopped working the way I needed it to work. Uh, now I treat those problems and my problem with drinking and using with God and I work a program. And that in most of the working of the program is just keeping my side of the street clean and being available in time, in any time another alcoholic or addict needs me. And I, and God puts me in crazy places, man. I, I go places where I'm like, what, what, why am I here? And then I meet somebody and they tell me something and, and then I go bing, ding, you know, like, that's why I'm here. I'm here to just hear what he says and take that to, or give this advice or show him what. And so I look for those opportunities 
every day. If I start to think about the future and how am I going to make this museum and do this and that, I, I'm I'm screwed. So what I do is I stay one day at a time. Today I got enough money in my pocket, enough gas in the tank, my refrigerator's full. Uh, what I mean, I'm sober. What else can I ask for? We have more with Danny Boy O'Connor coming up right after this. We're back with the Breaking Anonymity podcast and Danny Boy O'Connor from House of Pain. Uh, I'll wrap with this. I know I went way over. Um, the first six months of sobriety, I was just like, you know, um, on cloud nine. I was with the girl that I really loved. I thought she was the one I was going to marry. I still, unfortunately, have a, a tattoo of her name on my arm. Um, and at six months, she said, hey, it's not you, it's me. Um, I'm grabbing all my stuff and I'm out. And I was devastated. Uh, I also got a call from a company that I used to work for asking me to do a vision board, uh, basically just cut magazine clippings to a board and show what they what I predicted next season would look like for a sportswear brand. And I said, yeah, I could still do that for you. He's like, it's 500 bucks and I need it tomorrow. When you're newly sober, when I'm newly sober, $500, it's, listen, $500 is nice today. $500, you know, 15 and a half, 16 years ago was like, I needed it. So I did that. And in going through all of my old magazine clippings and all the stuff I used to have, I found a bag of dope and I was feeling poor me. This girl left me. She not only left me, she was banging the dude at Supreme where I got at the gig. Everybody on that block knew about it. I felt like, oh man, they fucking played me. They like everybody looking at me funny style. And I was gonna use at her, you know? She just left, my rent now doubled, the, the car that we shared got towed away. And I was like, I was literally, I was devastated. I thought, fuck it, I'm just gonna use. And then I thought, really dude, like that's, that's how easy you fold. That's how, that's all it took. And so I went and I threw that in the trash and I felt good about myself. And then I started working on that stuff and I did a nice little vision board. And then I laid down and my mind said, dude, that thing is only in the trash in the bathroom. <laughs> Why don't you go get that, you know? And I literally had to take it, wash it down the sink and destroy it. And I didn't want, to be honest with you, that I was still like, why did I do that? That was stupid. The next day I turned in the vision board, got my $500 and I just kept showing up. And it was a real rough first year for me in that year. And I stayed the course. Why I offer that up is because it wasn't like the first sobriety. It wasn't like all like up, 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 success, success, success. It was like tragedy within the first six months. I was heartbroken alone. I had no way really to pay my bills. And it was like half the income now was gone. And I just kept doing what I do. I stayed in the one day at a time. I showed up to meetings. I started walking the meetings and in LA, we know nobody walks and I had to walk uphill too, up Tohini. It was embarrassing and it was hard and I did it. And I, I swear, I just kept showing up. And within one year I was, I was doing a clothing company with the buddy and I started to make money and things were good. And then that fell apart. And then we ended up in a lawsuit and, and it got nasty and it just, it was a roller coaster ride. And so life's still lives. And there's nothing in, in life that's perfect. I expected it to be perfect. My first sobriety, this sobriety, I, I expected, I expect speed bumps. I expect turbulence. I expect, and when you expect it, it doesn't seem so, you know, I don't like it, but it is what it is. And I just kept showing up. I, I, I got married in sobriety. I got divorced in sobriety, which I never thought again was going to happen. And I've been in, you know, I've been all over the world with, with, with the new band, Lakoka. I've done some really great stuff and I've had some really miserable times in that. Despite that, if it's good, this too shall pass. If it's terrible, good news, this too shall pass. And my sobriety is not contingent on the outside stuff. It really, it has nothing to do with that. My buddy told me when I came back, he said, Danny, if all you get out of sobriety is sobriety, it better be enough because you like shiny things. And I saw you last time. 
and you know you just better get right size and I, I heard it when and, and I and I've been motivating off of that ever since I now live in so it, 10 years I was floundering didn't know what I was going to do for a living I even went to the Culver City uh, the and signed up for graffiti removal because I knew a guy that was like it was like yo this job is like 50 grand a year nobody will see you we ride around in dicky suits just buffing you know gray paint I'm like I'll take it because I I, I, I I didn't want to be homeless and I didn't want to be at 10 years you know and my buddy told me just wait you, you fill out the application that's fine but there, God has a plan for you and lo and behold this little house that I found on tour on our first Lakota tour that I was a fan of which is the house from the outsiders it just kept coming back it just the question kept coming up I wonder what happened to that house and in a nutshell I ended up making an offer for a house that was when I first found it, it was $45,000 I ended up buying it for $15,000 I crowdfunded most of the money to re rehab it I bought the house I had one poster to my name we now have the largest collection of outsiders movie and book memorabilia known to man I had no idea what, where my life was going I ended up moving to Tulsa Oklahoma which is dead center of the US uh, really cool people here really cool city um and really um my purpose is that you know my purpose is, is to stay sober and work with other alcoholics but i have also a purpose to be the gatekeeper of this museum and keep it open for people to enjoy this book was written by a 15 year old 15 and a half year old uh female student who was failing english and got a d plus in creative writing she wrote the outsiders it's her first book it's never been out of print in 53 years it sold more on the 50th anniversary than all of the years combined and i assure you it sold a lot of books all the years combined i wish anything i did sold more now than it did when i first did it what i believe now is you know like, like again i if you told me at a 13 year old that i'd be in it just wouldn't make sense you know and there's times i'm sitting on the couch in there doing my work and i'm listening to sex pistols i'm like i feel like i'm violating some like code of like like the, the the fabric of the universe is being ripped because i'm combining too many streams in this it just doesn't it's a surreal life uh and i'll wrap with this at the end of the day if I never make a penny off of what I'm doing, I'm overpaid, okay? There's not a lot of money in what I'm doing. And I assure you that, uh, you know, people, it, I do all right with the t-shirts, but it's not life-changing money. It's just like, it just keeps me, I think God knows me better than I know myself because every time he's giving me lump sums, I'm off to the races, you know? Uh, and, I, and I really believe that I'm overpaid because there's times I go over there and I don't want to be there. I'm tired, I'm irritable, I need more coffee. And then I see the smiles and the wide eyes and the kids and they're like, and I'm like, man, shut up, go open the gate, let these kids see. And I, you know, and it turns into an all day thing. And I do basically what I do with you guys is just go on and on and they leave and they're like, man, thank you so much. And that's, in my mind, this is where God wants me to be of service. He wants me to be the gatekeeper of this little thing and just show it to the students who, who want to discover a whole new porthole or a portal, whatever, into a, a new universe via reading, you know, The Outsiders. And so really, that's my gig. That's what I do. I love what I do. I told you, like, I'm the laziest, hardworking, you know, they say entrepreneurs are the only people who will work 80 hours to avoid working for somebody else for 40. Uh, I'm guilty of that. And, uh, you know, it's the greatest life I ever knew. And it, I owe it all to the 12 step program. And I owe it all to you guys because I, I, you know, again, this is a we program. I think I, you might have been in the same room. So I was recently all these years around the program and in the program. And I never heard those, uh, you know, the we part of that. It's uh, we alcoholics. And, I, and, and it really is. I don't 
don't want to and I couldn't do this alone. And that you guys are my crew. You know, growing up, I wanted to be in the Outsiders crew. Then I wanted to be in like the Rocksteady crew, whatever the crew. I was always, I wish I was that crew, this crew, that crew. We, our, our crew was even bigger and stronger. And, and, it, and all of those crews are in our crew. Not to tell any no names, but I'm saying like all of my heroes, most of them are in our crew now. So I'm like, you know, we're ahead of the curve with that. Like, so again, it's the greatest life I, I've ever known. And it's the, it's the gift I never wanted in the first place. And I'm so happy to have it. When I, people used to say grateful alcoholic, I was like, Ooh, like I'm just here for a quick minute and I'm out. And I, this is a lifestyle for me that I hope, you know, I never forget. And I don't plan on ever forgetting. And I, again, it's made, it's made all the difference in not only my life, but in anybody I come into contact is better off for me being sober. So with mm-hmm. that, I'll shut up. I apologize. For- <laughs> no, 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 dude. I Don't apologize. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, that is incredible. Um, there are so many things that I wanted to touch on when you were talking that I just completely um, could understand. And part of that was I went to a Catholic school when I was young, a really upper class, um, mostly white school. And my family didn't have as much money either. So I was always being made fun of for not having like the name brand stuff. And, and I think that's really where it started for me too, is like that feeling of like inadequacy and like not being worth shit. And then I found drugs and alcohol and I was like, Oh, this is magic. Like it gave me that liquid courage that you were kind of talking about. Um, and you know, that started a really long road for me of trying to like find, um, self-confidence in those things. So I was curious, um, when, you know, a lot of people, when they come to the program, they're kind of, some are turned off by the idea of God or a higher power, I guess. Sure. Um, was it difficult for you to find one? Um, and, and how did you kind of tap into that? How did you figure right. that out? God, the God thing would never bothered me is like, I know some people are just, they turned off by the idea. Mm-hmm. I just never, you know, the book that, that I read the, the, describes it as a pinch hitter and, and only in, in foxholes do I need them. And I could relate to that because if the mm-hmm. toilet... I'm holding the toilet and the world's spinning. And I'm like, please, God, I will never do this again. That happened a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as soon as I was well, I was like, wow, well, I didn't say that. Yeah. That's not God, really yeah. <laughs> what? So I never, and my first sobriety, I just said all the things that I needed to say, but I didn't buy in and do all the things I needed to do. What changed was, you know, early on, my, my old sponsor, who's still my one of my best friends, and he, he's got a, a museum as well, and he does all my printing, and we, we're thick as thieves. This, Tommy, I think you heard him too. He spoke at, at, at another thing. He said, bro, you know, I said, I don't, I don't the God thing, I'm not anti it. I, don't, I just don't get it. He goes, good, take off your watch. Let's open that up. And I'm like, what? He's like, let's open up and show me how that works. I'm like, what? You don't understand how that works neither, but you're rocking it, right? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, just believe that I believe. But that didn't help me long term. Uh, this sobriety, what's different is I, I changed the way I thought about what God was to me. Cause I always go like, I don't have a direct line to God. So I don't understand. I hear it though. In your voice, I see it in your eyes. I see it in your actions. I watch you. You don't even know I'm watching you in, in, mm-hmm. saying, in the program, even if you're not in the program. So I connect to God through my people and it's non-denominational. I don't care. It's not Jesus in my head. It's not, it, and it's not, not, I just, it don't, I don't have to get it. That's the great news. I feel it because this is not who I am. I want to know in the past, if I'm spending this amount of time, what do I get from this? How many, what is this going to do for me? And I'm not, I don't come from that anymore. I've already got mine. 
I'm over, I, I swear to you, I feel overpaid. And I feel also like one of the richest guys I know. And that has nothing to do with money. And if you knew the old me, I'd have to be treated extra special just to feel normal. And I'd have to overdo it and go too large to just feel like adequate. I don't need that. I don't, I've worked through all that. And I feel special because I do special things in my life that I'm passionate about. I mean, I can feel it, you know, right here, um, all these miles away from you. And it's a beautiful thing. And, you know, I, I wanted to touch on too, you know, when you were talking about your childhood and like how you grew up I mean it sounded like you had a pretty toxic household and I was wondering you know throughout the years have you had to make peace with I mean you've obviously had to make peace with that but did you make peace with like your mom and dad did you sit them down and be like oh my god like well I went through all this yeah this so usually this is the this is the awkwardest (sighs) yeah no it's not because I know I don't know if my mom follows me on Facebook okay we we just never I swear I don't know that that's my mom I, I know it's my mom right so I've done okay. the DNA that's my mom but <laughs> the DNA told me different I'd be like that finally makes sense and I love my mm. mom watch this because I do repost and I don't know what she watches and I want to qualify it I know just from my recovery that we all are doing the best we can with whatever situation you know right. at any time we can mm-hmm. that being said my mother and me couldn't be more different and we're mm-hmm. so much alike in one way uh, if I do, if I have character defects that I'm in my own relationships with my girl now, I'm like, I'm acting just like my mother. I fucking mm-hmm. hate it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I made my amends to my mother and she goes, thanks, it's about time. And then it was kind of like, okay, I'm busy, what else? And I was like, you fucking bitch. And I was, I was wow. Pissed. Yeah, so she didn't take any responsibility for all the things she put you through. I love my mom. I've always loved my mom. I always wish I had the dear mama Tupac connection that most thug dudes have with their mama. I never <laughs> felt that way because I always felt shunned. And it also, yeah. you know, it, it was a good, I watched my mom do a lot of things. And I thought if I, if, if I just go the other way, that would be great for me. So whatever, if she wanted to, if she worked around the clock and wasn't happy doing it, I was like, I'm never going to work for, for anybody. And so it's forced me to get strong in other areas. As much as I don't love that fact about it, I've made peace with the fact that this is the hand I was dealt. I could, this is the perfect excuse to drink and use, or it's the perfect excuse to say, you know, this is the, this is what happened in my life. And I succeeded despite that. And I'm always a fan of people telling me these were the obstacles. And despite those obstacles, I worked and found a work and a situation, a solution around these. And I still succeeded. And it's made me a better person because I understand that, you know, you have to also be in people's lives for years because of hip hop and because of insecurity and selfishness. If you came to my party, of course you're coming. You come to the house of pain party, you come to Danny boy, you know, and then you're like, Hey, my son's having a birthday next week. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I never show. And what I found out, if I wanted to have real friends, I had to be a real friend. And after all of the, like, you know, the high school bullshit and the record bullshit, I had no real friends and I had to restart over and be a friend. And I have great friends. I mean, I'm, I'm going to send you, uh, you know, my list, uh, search, you know, I, I, we don't share that, but I share it with Brad, but I, and, and I've been wanting to regardless, but I always put my friendships in there because those replaced what I felt that I didn't get at home. I have friends now that we on paper would never be like a good fit. You're like, that's your man. Like, yo, that's my man's my man because they had something that I needed. And it's usually not the, 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 you know, the stuff I thought I wanted, it, it's the, it's the actual being a man in times when the chips are down, I watch these guys do, you know, real stuff. And so I've been fortunate enough to surround myself with very strong men. And I learn from them on the regular, because I, when you grow up with no man, 
the the guy you emulate is for me it was like the records and the the movies and you know the Scarface and that those were the men I thought were like real real men you know and that that's not those are terrible role models. You know what else I really liked real fast is um, when you get clean. Like I, I just celebrated my 11 years on March 1st, which is pretty cool. So I'm going to pick up my little tag tonight, my virtual tag. Um, looking forward to that. <laughs> but um, so I find humor in literally everything. So when you said you had a fart machine, I too have the fart app. Did you know that there is a fart machine app? It is the most no, I... amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. It has like seven different farts, and I'm that's the kind of stuff that makes me laugh today like i i get joy out of farts and i yeah. really do so you i know, could i could relate <laughs> the old irish the old irish uh, saying you know laughter is the best medicine and it really is it really you know, is it really is I, that's uh that's what the jews say too <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I was going to share. First of all, thank you so much for your share. And, and you said something. Well, you said a bunch of things. But one of the things you said towards the end is you said, I like to solve problems. I don't like to just hear people complain. I love that that's your energy. But, the, you know, the other thing that I love about your share and, and where you come from, it's very few people that can associate with the fact that you can go to a high school where people that you hang out with become people. You know, you talk about Everlast and I think about dope new styles of Rama breaking science mm -hmm. down with the Rama syndicate alliance. You on the tip like crack of a whip. You know what I'm saying about ships and slips of the lip. You drunk when I'm getting drunk. I'm bottom I keep in my trunk. But like Everlasting was my shit. Like, you know, I was mad that he was down with Rama syndicate. Like I was I was fucking tight about that shit. But I was but he was dope as fuck. Like I was like, yo, that Rom Syndicate record was dope. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and like G Easy owes his whole style to Everlast from, you know, because they're the same dude basically. But there's very few people that come from that. Like you saw O'Shea Jackson become Ike's Q. Ooh, so the line was around. I saw right. Velvet Viv DeVoe through Brad. Brad was bringing in like Throwdown Twins. Remember those dudes? Right, the Throwdown Twins. Yeah, like yeah. Had, a, had a single that was like a hit with the, my Daytons. It was like. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Jeff, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, all, yeah, all those people Jeff, coming through. Yeah. So, uh -huh. so didn't you feel like there was a part of you? Even though you were kind of shy, and, but he, but you saw a success, and didn't you feel like it was almost granted? Like you were like, "Yo, I can do this." Like it's a no-brainer. Like I can do this if Brett can do it, and Divine can do it, and Jeff can do it, and definitely Cube can do it. Hey, no, but I what I felt like was like, <laughs> like no, wave, let me jump on too, because I knew. I always knew I had a piece that they didn't have, not, not cube that, that I don't, in my circle, we all looked up to divine styler. He was the truth. He come from Brooklyn. He had this, he literally had that style down and he spit this crazy 5% of type. I know he's not that, but like he had that, like that, it, it was just that he, he was future shit. And, and Eric was right below that as like, you know, divine was his mentor and me and Eric knew each other, but I was like, you know, I was, I had a lot, he was, him and divine were just writing and doing the thing. I was in the mix, you know what I mean? Without getting like, I don't want to sound like I never, but I was out there, you know, punching people and doing stupid shit. So I felt like when he, when he, I thought 
I didn't listen. I didn't know if any of us were going to make it. And I, if I, if we did though, I thought I'd be seeing divine at the, at the forum back then, you know, that he'd be, right. cause they were making videos with like, it was, it was what James Lavelle did with uncle 20 years later. I don't know if you're right. familiar with that project, but it was like, yeah. So no is the answer, but I did think anything was possible. If somebody would just listen to me on how to, especially Eric, I was like, this guy, he has something. Cause I know that rhyme too. And I could tell you most of the rhymes on that record. And I also remember thinking like, okay, who are you talking to? Because you play, I felt like it was catering and with, and he don't need me to make fucking excuses. I've always admired him for what he does. And, and, and he's a genius at that. And I feel that if you make a record at 17, you got a lot of influences like between the producer and the record company saying, you need to make a song like this. You need to do it like that. But it was so not focused that I thought we could focus this thing in a time where the, you know, public enemy and, 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 and all of this thing was like hardcore, but it wasn't for white guys being hardcore. And I was already doing hardcore shit out there. And if you were a B-boy in LA, you were going to, we were going to the, to the Sherman square roller rink, going to see uh, stuff. We were at world on wheels and it was blood crip. And you had to really be about it. You had to really be about it. But one of the things that our movie, nobody would tell you. World on Wheels in LA? Yeah, no. That oh, was, I pulled up to that place and I left. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't think this is the place for me. If you would have started in the 80s, it was, it, was, it, was, it was, and I just, so we put something together that was special. But yes, that part of the, just just by geographical, uh, everybody who was somebody lived there. Daryl Strawberry lived there when he first signed to the Dodgers. Uh, the Jackson family lived there. So you could, you could, I used to work at the record store and Michael Jackson used to come in with the pandemic mask on and I'd get calls like we got our, uh, you know, they thought he was stealing. I was like, that's Michael Jackson, bro. He's not hiding. They were security alerts because they didn't know why this guy with his face <laughs> Get right. out of here. Yeah. So, so I went to high school with, you know, Dana Dane, Slick Rick, J. Cool from the Fresh 3 MCs, Dougie Fresh, like Changing Faces, Mark Pitts. Come on Brandon, now. Stan. Now you're just like, you rubbing it in no, my no, face. No, but, that, but, that, but what I'm saying is that's that. So when I was so, I, I, I call it Fresh by Association because like I was like, oh, my man could do it. Like my man, like Ricky D literally went from 84 graduating to Lottie Dottie. Like I always tell people, I knew all the words to Lottie Dottie in 1980 because it was a Kango crew. You know, it was something that they did in the streets. Like I knew them all. In fact, when I was trying to impress girls smoking woolas saying Lottie Dottie on the beach, like it was my run. Yeah, like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, so it could, because that's, you know what it was. So I, I get and understand the, you know, the, the fresh by association. But two of the things, and I know I, I did want to share this with you because I've I've grown to really love you, not only because of your message and what you do in recovery, but what you share. And people have always asked me, well, what's your what was your beefs with House of Pain? What was your beef? We didn't have beef with House of Pain. What our beef was, and, and just so we're clear, yeah, yeah, yeah. what our beef was was that you had the dudes from young black teenagers in your video like they were down and that shit was a fucking violation. Like, how you gonna have dread white boy in your fucking video? The kid's a fucking cornball. Like, yeah. how? He, and you're dope. And and I know Everlast is dope and I know Lethal's dope because I know Mugs from 783. Like, I know all of your affiliations. And then you got the dude jumping in the video. Yeah, like, yeah, oh, right? cornball moment. Like, because, and, and, and on top of that, 
Harry Allen did a whole piece on like how he tried to explain mansplain how some white kids could be called young black teenagers. And I called him out the new music seminar and he got blasted in front of John Schechter. So here's your video and it's dope as fuck. And you got that cool. And then they got little, but this is the thing I got to ask you, like, and I know this is off of our subject for breaking anonymity, but I got to ask you this, bro. You stuck the house of paint stick on that police at the fucking. At the, at, first of all, how'd you do it? No, like that's how'd you do? Tough. Did that's you do the fingertip? Did, was it like this? Yeah, like you had it on the fingertip, and you just, it's yo, greatest crazy. moment in hip hop video because <laughs> you're looking at it like yeah, this. No, I got it dirty. You had this. You had the icy grin on it like this, bro. I am the fucking king of one liners, and I'm also the king of like. I used to pants people on stage. Motherfuckers would be like, when when we first started, everybody was like, whatever. You getting in the van? I'm run my finger right up your ass. You're like, whoa, what the fuck? You know, like I was letting stink bombs out on tours, and I think Mugs got tired of that shit. You know, I was doing all types of shit. I used to go down to 42nd Street. There used to be a, a, a magic store over there and they sold such a, a, a bad stink bomb that they sold an antidote that come with it. And it didn't smell like a fart, though. It smelled like some like it really smelled like someone burnt like a car tire. So it was atrocious. And I would throw them backstage. I threw one under Russell, uh, Russell Simmons table one night and shut down a restaurant. Oh, snap. Yeah, <laughs> too, because it was like, yo, he was like a business meeting. And I was like, hey, guys, and I, fl- I used to flick him. Bow. And then two minutes later, they're like, what the fuck? Uh, and there was no explaining who did it. So that that was like a mediocre prank. That was my whole shit. I just, I loved what the Beastie Boys looked like in Hold It Now, Hit It. That whole like, you know, with the rings and the bikes and the skateboards. And it was like, and I loved Bob and Doug McKenzie. Uh, the the Strange Brew movie came out. That's I grew up in the White North. And yeah, and I'm, yeah, I'm actually met dude through, through his daughter who, who, who is a friend, but uh, I grew up roller skating and ice skating. I had a roller rink and, an, and a mall that had an ice skating rink. So I played hockey and back in the eighties, everything was Canadian or nothing when you're playing hockey and Bob and Doug McKenzie and Rush were the thing. So I loved that kind of Cheech and Chong comedy slash, you know, Bob and Doug McKenzie, the Beastie Boys, they had all of the swagger that I loved. What I did not know, and this is on topic, but off, I was shocked to find out that I didn't know you knew mugs like that. He gets out of the car in the, in the, in your video. Mm-hmm. That, I, somebody showed me that like six months ago. I'm like, no, he didn't. They're like, dude, that's his man right there. I'm like, what the? I'm like, man. Yeah, that, was, that was my man's my man. Like, that was my that's man. Like, that's I didn't people. know that like, either. I didn't catch that. Video. And, yo, know, to, to, to the same point, I saw your video and you guys had the old car. I'm like, damn, we, we that's how I rolled, too. Because my first shit was a 63 Impala when I had my first car. You know, we were rolling gangster white boy style. So there's always that that rivalry thing. But by the time we got on and I met you, uh, I was never maybe, and I'm pretty sure Eric, you know, I don't speak ever for, for him. Um, I, I was always happy to just make it to the big show. And if I'm playing football with Run DMC in fucking third base, bro, I mean, I made it to the big show. There is no bigger than that. So I was always, even back then, trying to like not, not peacock too hard that people were like, don't, don't bring him around. As time went on and the thing started coming back down to earth, I started to lose the gratitude and I got more, uh, you know, I expected to be treated a certain way to act. And I, in, inside, I knew it was starting to, the magic trick was starting to wear off. And that's when the nasty Danny came out. Because again, like I said, it's the low self-esteem in me. Right. And looking back, 
the house of pain thing is the best and worst thing that ever happened. It's like, of I course. created my own prison. I created my own, like, you know, environment. You created your own paradise as well. Yeah. Own prison at the same time. And I look back at it, like I wouldn't change a thing because it, 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 it forced me into growing up uh, and getting, and, and getting my shit together years after I should have did it. And I look back, like I said, with nothing but like respect and admiration for not only you, but anybody who's, who's here doing, uh, what we're doing, because again, it's like, this is st- strictly a blessing every day that I get to do this. And, you know, yeah. today I, I'll remember it, you know, forever because it, there's been years where, like I said, I, I always wanted to tell you too, like, you know, I hope you never thought that there was any, you know, a- animosity on my, no, on my side. No, no. In you. fact, I was so right. happy when I found out you and Ill Bill and Slain formed La Coca Nostra, like, yep. I just was like, well, first of all, you know, me forming nonfiction with Bill and Gore-Tex, like that was such a great moment for me personally, professionally, emotionally, spiritually. Like I felt like I'd found my tribe, you know, that third base really wasn't my tribe. It really wasn't. It was a group that I was in, but it wasn't my tribe. You know, being with Nas, being with OC, those were my boys. It wasn't my tribe. Nonfiction was my tribe. And I and again, my own self-centeredness, my own egocentric, my own addictions, not to my drug of choice, but my to my own addictions, sure. my self-centeredness, my abuse, my self, you know, my self-afflicted behaviors, my lying, my my hustling, my stealing. You know, that was the demise of that relationship. And I was able to make living amends to to Bill recently, you know, because of something that came out in a um an article that I lied about that I had to make a a living amends to. And we were able to reconnect. And he was just like, yo, I'm just glad you're back in my life, homie. Like, and you know, and that was like, that was an amazing like moment for me because for my recovery, I didn't lose everything until I got into recovery. I had all the treasures. I had all the personal treasures, professional treasures. I had everything. I didn't lose everything until I got in recovery. When I gave up my drug of choice, I lost my house. I lost my car. I lost my 401k. I, thank goodness my wife never left and my kids you never left. got 401k? Yeah, isn't that crazy? I lost all of that. <laughs> Where? I was seriously yo, gonna yo. bring that up. Like who rappers my father, no, my, father, my father, let me tell you my father was on Wall Street. So my father set me up with a 401k when I was making paper. He taught me all about how to put away money. So I lost I lost my 401k, I lost all my IRA, I lost everything. But the one thing I never lost is my recovery. You know, I don't need the house that I lost. I'm real happy with the house that I have today. I'm much happier knowing that I got money in the bank than I have money abandoned in my pocket. You know, so there's so many blessings that I've gotten from my own gratitude list, you know, doing my meditation, reading my daily meditation, you know, doing a 12 step call, checking in on newcomers, you know, doing the things that I, I love about this program. And and I thank you. I appreciate you. And, and you know what? This is possible because of sobriety and sobriety only, you know, and again, this is to the question of God. You know, I feel God is in the room or on the line with us right now mm-hmm. because this conversation would not be possible ever if we were drinking and using, cause I'm not coming off of my bullshit and probably, totally. and we're going to be like, yeah, whatever well, we were doing, you know, mm-hmm. and that, that is our introduction or our representative representing Danny today is 
Danny Boy. <laughs> Danny Boy is way different than Daniel O'Connor, and he'll be <laughs> MC Serge and not you know Michael right. Barron. And then and then whole different. Right now you're talking and you know we're talking to each other, and this is the language of recovery. This is the language of God, heart to heart, not head to head. Want to thank Danny Boy O'Connor. And if you want more information about the Outsiders Museum, please check theoutsiders.com or go to Google and simply search the Outsiders Museum. I'm sure Danny Boy is there with a big warm hug and a stay gold shout for you as you enter the museum. If you're looking for help or know someone who needs some, please contact brandonhouse.com. Brandon Novak has a recovery program and we are supporting him in his efforts to help those in need. So please reach out to brandonhouse.com if you are looking for help. Join us next week as our special guest is Royce the Five Nine as he shares with us his recovery story and we look forward to sharing our experience, strength and hope with you next week. For Kyle Eustace, my name is MC Search. And thank you for listening to the Breaking Anonymity podcast. Check out new episodes of Breaking Anonymity every Wednesday, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And if you like what you hear, please tell your friends and subscribe. The Breaking Anonymity podcast is a timeless podcast company production. Executive produced by Chantel Barron, Brett Epic-Mazur, Kyle Eustace, and Michael Barron. Produced by Kyle Eustace and Michael Barron. Sound design by Brett Epic-Mazur and Nick Davila. Breaking Anonymity logo created by Paul Lukes. Sound effect voiceover by Tembisa Mashaka. If you're battling with addiction or know someone who is, please call the National Addiction Helpline. 1-800-662-4357. That's 1-800-662-4357. You do not have to battle addiction alone.